Hello everyone, I'm Kate Braug and this is The Pivotal Moment. Together we will talk to 100 of the most inspiring and powerful women entrepreneurs in New York. They will tell us about what it takes to set up your own company, how to be the architect of your own career, and how they are reshaping the business world. I'm an entrepreneur myself and I'm looking forward to hearing their stories along with you. Today's guest is Carrie Miller. Two years ago, she co-founded her own venture capital fund, Overton VC, after having a successful career at really anywhere she worked, especially at Goldman Sachs, where she worked in eight different positions and was selected for high-performance leadership. She's an active philanthropist, supporting nonprofit organizations and even creating her own. Last year, she received the first Elaine Winnick Award from the Jewish Federation New York, which is an incredible achievement. And today we speak about religion, philanthropy, being a woman in the venture capital world and what she looks for in the companies Overton VC invests in. Carrie, the first time we met, we planned to get together for a quick coffee, which turned into another coffee and then turned into lunch. And that day I could have talked to you all day. Um, So I'm very happy to have you as a guest on this podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Two years ago, you co-founded your own venture capital fund, Overton VC. Was there a single pivotal moment that made you take that step? And what was it? Sure. So it was really kind of organically came. The, The moment that I decided to pursue it was at a catch up with a friend of mine who is another investor, and I had invested with him in the past, he said to me, Kiri, you're already advising startup companies. You're already an angel investor. Why don't you consider launching your own fund? And I have to say, I I hadn't thought about having fiduciary responsibility before it, but I'd say that Manny was the one who planted the seed for me to explore going down the path of launching Overton. Right. So it sounds like you were, it was an unexpected step, but when you were ready for at that point. Correct. There were a lot of whispers that were happening around me. um, And it wasn't really until that seed was planting that my eyes opened and all those whispers became crystal clear. And once you made that decision to set up the fund, how did you secure your first investment? Once the seed was planted, I will say I had been an angel investor for about 10 years prior to launching the fund. So I, in my network, I was already, already built a reputation to source and to connect uh, with startups and entrepreneurs who were doing really interesting things. So I had already built this mechanism where interesting opportunities were coming my way. And when the idea of Overton started to come to fruition, A, the first start was talking to my network. So I went to my network of other venture capitalists and other investors, ones who knew me to learn as much as I could about what it would take to launch this type of business, to have that fiduciary responsibility. During those conversations, I also knew that I wanted to find a partner I didn't want to do it alone. I wanted to find somebody that had complementary skill sets. And once I was able to organically identify that person who actually was a friend of mine through my philanthropy network, the two of us really worked for about six months, really identifying a very tight investment thesis 
for how we would look and how we would invest. And as we were putting together that investment thesis, we also started looking for opportunities that if we pulled the trigger and move forward with the fund, that we would already have a pipeline of opportunities that we would consider investing in. And how do you how did you choose a company? Because there are thousands and thousands of companies to invest in, right? I mean, how do you sort through them to pick oh, what you'll invest great, in? Great question. And just to give you a nugget of data, we sent out our annual report to our investors earlier this year. We looked at over 850 opportunities last year. <laughs> we have a lot that comes to us or that we source ourselves. And of those 850, we actually conducted due diligence on 100 of them and ultimately invested in six of them. So to answer your questions, what we look for. So number one, my background is talent strategy. And as an angel investor, my thesis was always on betting on the jockey. Who's the entrepreneur? What's their track record? Who are they? Are they collaborators? Are they looking for advisors and other individuals to be around them to help complement their skill set? Number two is we invest in seed to series A rounds. And what that means is we're investing in companies that have already proven a product market fit and their product or service is already in the market. They already have sales. Ideally, they have a million in annual revenue. However, we will invest earlier if they've shown signs that they're growing and are on a path to profitability. The third criterion is, is it disrupting a major marketplace? We only invest if we think that the opportunity is a $5 billion marketplace. And then the fourth criterion is, can we add value? Can Michael, my business partner, and myself add value to these companies? Can our, we now have 20 operating partners who are industry and functional experts? When we invest, we're a true check plus. We don't just provide capital. We also provide expertise and advisors. Right. So it's interesting to, to hear that you really invest in the founders or the, the people who run the company, as well as the business model itself. How important is the character of the company's management when you're choosing an investment? Do you care only about their business performance, or do you care about who they are from a larger point of view? Yeah, no, great question. So first and foremost, has to be an exceptional entrepreneur and team. And one thing we look for is we look for diversity. I am proud to say that I'm a woman GP, and half of our portfolio companies are women-led. But one of the things is, and I always say, I'll invest in a white male-led company. I have fiduciary responsibility to find the top highest potential returning companies. The makeup of who the entrepreneur is, as well as how they're building out the team, is, I would say, the most important thing I look for. They have to also prove that they already have that product market fit and there's performance. But the first thing is, who are they? Are they collaborators? What's their track record? Do they want to partner with us? There's many entrepreneurs and many startups that they have their idea, they have their vision, and they just want capital. That's not the right opportunity for us. We're really looking for those entrepreneurs who are looking for partners. 
And what is the most important thing you have to think about when dealing with other people's money? <laughs> Not losing it. I will say in full transparency, that was the one thing when I was approached to launch this fund on, I was investing as an angel on behalf of myself. And so you know, that's stressful in itself if you're doing it for yourself, but then to be able to open that up to your network. So for me, it's knowing that when I go to work, that I'm really looking to maximize the returns. I can understand that there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. Definitely. And look, there's the good news is um, there's a lot of processes around to make sure that we're doing it in a controlled way. And one of the things We took, Michael and I took our time to launch the fund. So we officially launched in late 2018. We didn't have our first close, meaning we didn't call capital and start, we started deploying capital in the middle of 2019. Oh, wow. So you really took your time to We took, exactly. We took our time building the infrastructure to be able to scale. And what's the most difficult thing about running your own company? I would say time management. My career started in management consulting and then working at Goldman Sachs. I had always been in really structured and um, companies where teams and there was, as I grew and matured in my career, I had leveraged through others. Now starting my own company, it's me and one other general partner. We have resources and we have operating partners around us, but I'm really, and my business partner and I, we're rolling up our sleeves and getting involved in every aspect of the business. Um, And as we're growing, the two of us are doing the lion's share of it. So for me, it's really time management. And when the list is 100 things on my list and getting five things checked off might be a great day. How do you choose those first five? Is that a matter of urgency? How do you choose what happens first? Yeah, so I'd say it's a combination of two things. One thing that I've always been good at is in my corporate world is knowing at any given moment what's blowing up first. What's the sense of urgency? fire. Um, And so having that sense of knowing what's the most important and in any minute, it is rejiggering those priorities, especially if we look at COVID or anything that are external that might affect it. The other is partnering with somebody where you can also get on the same page to know where those priorities are. So to like sanity and gut check with each other that we're both spending our time in the right things. And we have complementary skill sets. So sometimes I might start a project and then my business partner and I both realize actually he's better equipped to finish it and vice versa. So it's A, having the gut and intuition of knowing kind of what's blowing up and what's urgent and also having a great teammate who makes sure that we're in alignment on what those things are. 
Right. Carrie, you've succeeded in some very competitive fields um, where it often comes down to either getting promoted or losing your job. Like you just mentioned, you worked at Goldman Sachs for many years in positions of increasing responsibility. And Goldman Sachs is a very high achievement oriented organization and you did so well there. So how did you feel about working in that environment and how did you handle that competitive field? I thrive in challenging and stressful situations. I was a competitive runner growing up and I think challenges just always have been something that I enjoyed. And so being at Goldman really, really was able to capitalize on on my natural wiring. And I also was at Goldman. I joined Goldman in early 2008 when I was probably one of the last hires in the door pre the recession. And while I was at Goldman, I actually was in eight different roles. And one of the things that I've always liked is I like getting in and getting out. I like solving things. And I was very fortunate. And I think I probably had a unique experience at Goldman where almost every year I was in a different role, problem solving based on what that need was at that specific time because of the financial markets. And so I got a lot of exposure across all different businesses. I also didn't get bored because I was in a lot of different roles. And also being in an environment like Goldman, where you're surrounded by top business professionals who keep you on your toes was extremely rewarding for me. I also feel like because naturally I'm more of a free spirit, Goldman gave me a lot of structure and the toolkits to prepare me for launching my own business. Right. I just wanted to ask you, did it provide a good foundation for the rest of your professional career? But it sounds like it definitely did. It definitely did. But I would say that it was one component of it. I feel like I started my career in management consulting, which you have a lot of different types of clients, a lot of different types of cultures that led me to Goldman, which is a very corporate environment with high performers. I feel like I was able to then bring that management consulting background into Goldman, almost as if I was an internal consultant. But I got to really learn that one company culture of excellence. And you'll see kind of as I built over 10, there's aspects of all aspects of my life and my career that I've been able to bring together um, through a my experience, but then the network as well, because, you know, you're only also as good as the network around you. And obviously the Goldman Network has been really beneficial for me as well, um, going out and raising my fund. And there will be some women entrepreneurs listening who are exploring the option of setting up a VC fund. What essential things should they consider before doing so? Sure. Number one is who is their network? One of the things is it's not only about raising the capital, but it's also making sure that you have the right deal flow from the right network. So really validating that you have the right support system around you from A, the financial capital side, but also from the deal sourcing side to make sure that you're only as good as the deals you get. So having a strong foundation and pipeline to great companies through one's network. Setting up like we did, 
talking to your network on setting up the foundation, learning some of the kind of the requirements to have fiduciary responsibility. There's definitely a lot of financial rules, et cetera. And so above all, making sure you have the right lawyers and accountants and fun admin to make sure that the operations are kosher in order to be able to kind of go through those motions. But the first thing that I would recommend them doing is talking to their network if they know other venture capitalists, those that know them to really validate that there's an opportunity for their background and their thesis in the space. Doing a lot of research, talking to their network, making sure they have the right admin. Correct. And then with launching a fund, it's really important to have a track record. If you're a potential VC that's thinking about it, in order to actually go and execute, there has to be some lead up or some validation that you're the right person to do it. And the best way to do that is through having a track record. So if you know, for an example, that your goal is to launch a fund in a few years, my recommendation would be to start doing some angel investing. And if you don't personally have that type of capital to angel invest, there's also angel networks where you can co-invest smaller amounts. And then even the third way, if you have no capital to do it, starting to source and put together hypothetical portfolios. So when you start to reach out to potential funders, you've already done the work to say, hey, I identified Airbnb in 2008 and look how it did. So it's really trying to build your track record as well on how your companies that you have looked at are performing. And that's the best way, I think, to set you up for success as you actually go to market now your fund. Right. Carrie, if you could skip five years ahead to see what Overton VC has accomplished by then, what would be your definition of success for the company? By year five, we have already launched our second fund. The way that it works in the fund process is it's a 10, the first fund is a 10, 10 year fund. And over the first two to three years of the fund, you're deploying capital to your companies. And we actually reserve half of our fund for follow-on rounds with our existing portfolio companies. So by year four, our capital will have already been deployed. Our goal is to have some quick exits. So a lot of exits in the industry, the average is call it five to eight years. We're looking to build our track record. And the best way to build our track record is to have some exits, some sales of our existing portfolio companies. I also would have already launched my second fund, and I probably would have already started deploying capital into new companies in the second fund. And then we want to grow. Right now, we've been really, we're entrepreneurs, we're scrappy. We have part-time operating partners who are industry and functional experts that we tap into to help us on due diligence and portfolio company management. We bring on two interns every summer. Supposedly, it's harder to get a job in venture capital than to be a professional athlete. So we're able <laughs> to get incredible investor, uh, excuse me, incredible interns that actually just started this past week. But by year five, 
I would like to to think that we're going to actually have other full-time employees besides Michael and myself. We will have brought on another partner or a principal and have a full-time associate or an analyst. So that's my goal. I also would like to stay say that we still have invested in at least 50% diversity-led companies, if not more, but being able to be really proud of our approach and how we think about diversity, um, staying true to that vision longer term as, as well. Speaking about diversity, because you co-founded your company in 2018, and since that time, there has been a lot of attention in the news to the gender gap in the venture capital world. Is this something you've experienced firsthand? hundred, hundred percent. And it, it's, it's interesting because there are biases that exist and there's data to, to validate it. And it's interesting, even if it's in the tone even if it's for fundraising. for So for me, I'm a woman GP who's also marketing my fund. And there's data that supports that when women entrepreneurs go out to raise capital, the questions that are asked are more about risk and how are they ensuring that they will not fail versus when our male counterparts go for their same conversations, there's not as much of kind of the, the negative and the it's more of, you know, how are they going to stay on track to achieve their goals versus the risk associated with it? But how, how do you how do you respond to that? So it's changing the dialogue and really selling the if you sell your performance in your background, that always is a is a good way. Also, if you kind of pre-qualify before going into those meetings, being very clear on what the intentions are before those meetings. So you're setting an agenda and being very clear. So I, it's just very interesting. 11% of VCs are women today, and hopefully that number continues to, to rise. 3% of total venture capital Funding is allocated to women. I think 11% of funding goes to companies that have at least one woman founder. So clearly there still is a gender gap, which is so interesting because 80% of consumer spending is controlled by women. For me, it's really um, about while I'm fundraising, making it clear what the intentions are really double downing and validating my individual track record and being able to remove some of those gender biases that might exist. But it's the same as in fashion. I mentioned it in a different episode as well. I think 18% of all women's wear companies are led by women, yeah. while almost 100% of those consumers are actually women. So, But do you think that will change anytime soon? 100%. And look, it's not, you also don't want to set up for failure. So you, and this is something that in my roles at Goldman, I worked on many projects related to the statistics under diversity and inclusion. And in one way, you have to build up women to be able to be in those opportunities to succeed. Women have had a later start in building their careers. And so you also want to have a healthy data to support that X percent of women today are at the VP level versus five years ago, which was less. And just making sure that, that we're, we're getting there. And I feel really positive about us getting there. And I really hope that this continues post-COVID. Yeah, I hope so too. 
Carrie, I would like to speak about uh, philanthropy for a second, because you've told me you've been very active in philanthropy for a very long time now. How did you become interested in it? Yeah, great, great question. So I would say it's, I'm very fortunate that it was instilled in me from a really early age. I did grow up in a family where philanthropy was always top of mind. In high school, I was president of an organization that we tutored kids from the boys and girls clubs. So it's always been just very important to me to give back. I'm very grateful for what I have. And I also recognize that there's a role that everyone can play in in helping society. And when I moved to New York, it was when I thought about extracurricular activities. That's exactly where I leaned towards. I got involved very quickly in an organization called Let's Get Ready, which is an organization that is college prep, like um, Kaplan for the SATs, that is targeted for inner city kids. So in New York, I got really involved in Let's Get Ready. I'm also very involved in organizations in the Jewish community and Israel. So I I'm a member of a venture philanthropy organization called Natan. I'm also part of National Young Leadership Cabinet for Jewish Federations in North America. And I've also started a not-for-profit called Service Corps. What gets me out of bed in the morning, and I talked about this when talking about mission, looking for mission-driven entrepreneurs, what does get me out of bed in the morning is thinking about what will my, what is my impact in the world and what is my impact in society. And it's, I've been fortunate that I've been able to give my time and I'm able to give some financial resources um, and everyone can give in different ways. That's the beautiful thing. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Right. And because some people support causes with money and some with personal effort, and it sounds like you do a combination of both. What kind of personal effort do you put into philanthropy? I mean, it could be anything from grassroots to through any of these organizations that I'm part of, grassroots on helping one of their agencies. So for an example, last week, I planned a service day for the philanthropy, Jewish Federations in North America. And I spent the day making cards for elderly patients of homes in New York City. That is where my time and energy, I spent all of two Sundays ago making cards. Right now, a lot of people are isolated. They can't have visitors. And I spent the day making cards. So there's hands-on opportunities. But the, the bigger strategic is doing allocations, very similar to venture capital. One of the, the boards I sit on is we actually allocate grants to startup philanthropies. And I sit on an allocation committee where these not-for-profits present to us and we allocate funds directly to them. And then we also help them on the strategic direction of these new not-for-profits. So it's a combination on hands-on to strategic. So it's really supporting the causes in every way you can. Exactly. You've received the Elaine Winnick Award for the United Jewish Appeal Federation New York, and that's a huge accomplishment. How did that make you feel? Sure. I mean, it's one of those things where the reward of doing and being so active in philanthropy is people say giving makes you feel good. 
And so I've always been motivated. A, it's natural to me, but that just the the feeling of knowing that you're helping others. Um, and this was the first time that I had received some public uh, recognition. So I was extremely humbled and honored. And Elaine, through, I got to know the history of Elaine through this process. And she was one of the first women entrepreneur leaders. Um, she was just, her energy was contagious, the way that she was able to bring in other people through her energy and her commitment. Um, it really w- was humbling and I felt honored uh, to be their first recipient. What does the award tell you you've done? It, it is an award literally in Elaine's merit and in her honor. So there it was a selection committee, um, including her daughter, who is on the committee. So it's sponsored by one of her closest friends, who is Charles Brothman, who is an amazing entrepreneur himself and philanthropist. His family is the Seagram's family. And so there was a kind of a selection process to award it to somebody or mirrored Elaine's energy, impact, and enthusiasm for service. And I was definitely an honor to receive. And it also, when you do receive an honor like that, it does, it's a good moment to take a step back um, and to evaluate because there's definitely things that I mirrored Elaine in, but there's definitely things that I learned from her after reading her book and getting to to know her through her daughter. So it also, I would say, not only did I receive this award, it then elevated me to want to be kind of even more giving than, than I already am. It sounds like the award also motivated you to do even better. Exactly. Um, and we talked about time management before, and you work on so many things at the same time. And you're such an achiever. And outside of that, you're also able to maintain an active social life. How do you balance all those different things? <laughs> it's always a challenge, always, and especially now. I'm a very active social individual, but the crazy thing is now with launching my own business is my lives have blurred. My philanthropy friends and colleagues are now investors of mine. My friends are now advisors of my fund. And so there is this aspect of this convergence of everything in my life that almost compounds the fact that there's only 24 hours in a day. And so I feel really lucky and blessed that I get to work with friends and philanthropists. The flip side is Sometimes it does feel like I'm always working, even when I'm out in a social setting. The good news is I like what I do. Part of my role is being out there networking for opportunities. So where I network for opportunities is also through my my network. So the time management aspect is difficult because it does feel like I am always working. But I do think with time management, there's different dimensions in our life. It's career, it's family, it's friends, it's health, it's philanthropy. Those are kind of, I'd say, like the five key dimensions. And you can't have them all (laughs) at 100%. 
And so you're always trying to find that balance. And right now, work is 80%, I'd say. Health is 10% because above all, health should always be in there. And for family should always be in there. And so that therefore is the trade-off on maybe some of my traditional social activities. Where in that is time for yourself? And what do you do to relax? Yeah, that's where I'd say that when I say health, that's mm -hmm. where I say that's me. That's the, whether it's me, I'm a, I used to be a competitive runner. I have a lot of energy and running for me is a way to clear my mind, meditate and release energy. So that is my time. I also actually, I take off every Saturday. It's a day I observe the Sabbath, which is the day of rest. And my network knows that I will not send a work email after sundown on Friday for 24 hours. And having that break was a game changer for me. And it happened right um, kind of my final year at Goldman. I never realized how important shutting your mind off is more than an hour. And so I really give myself an entire day to shut off where I'm not doing any work, where I'm not scheduling any meetings, where I really use the day to take it easy, reflect and feel gratitude, really. Above all, it's a, a day that I can feel gratitude. It sounds like religion plays a very important role in your life. Do you get your support there? I'd say fundamentally, I'm a spiritual person. Um, I do believe that there's a higher being. Something had to create, is my view. Something had to create. And therefore, I view that there are things that are outside of our control and there is a higher existence. My family is Jewish and some of the perseverance um, that my family has gone through over time has laid a foundation for my values that is also very circular to Judaism. I've had my highs and lows around religion and I'm respectful of every religion and everyone's view around religion. I know where it is for me. I'm very comfortable for it. How do you incorporate that in the rest of your life? Because you take off Saturdays. What else do you do? My mom's family, they fled Europe right before the Holocaust. They were first, my mom's parents were first generation and seeing how their family unity and their value system, which was from the religion, set the foundation for their life in America. And so that for me has really set an example really for almost everything that I'm doing. Also, there's even rules around giving back. There's just a notion of a lot of kind of the values that I have today are embedded in some of those, um, the value systems of my religion. What is something you failed at? What have I failed at? <laughs> One thing. I failed at being a rock star. <laughs> is that I, what you always wanted to be? <laughs> I always, if I could have been anything, I was, I was watching, I was allowed two hours of TV every week. And from the age of three, I was watching MTV. I walked around with my boom box. I 
really wanted to be a musician or a singer, and I do not have a voice. Play a little piano, but I never, my cousins all had ears for music. I love music. I love live music. I'm euphoric when I hear good music, but I've never really excelled at performing in music. So that for me is kind of out of anything on what I wished I could have done and what I have not been able to succeed in is the creative music side of things. If you could have dinner with three people and you could choose anyone in the world, alive or dead, who would you choose? Oh, good question. Good question. Uh, um, my mom's grandparents would be one of them. Um, and the reason for that is they were immigrants from Europe. Um, they came over with nothing. And Ida Glazer um, was a brilliant chemist who created um, what would become the Joe and Ida Glazer Bottling Company. Um, and so I would love to be able to actually meet them, hear their story. Another person I would love the opportunity to have dinner with is Ellie Wazell. Um, I've met Ellie, but I haven't had more than two words with Ellie, um, but just to learn some from his resilience. You know, right now we're going through so much with COVID. Um, to think about being in isolation for as long as he was during the Holocaust, to be able to come out of that resilient and to thrive, to really have the opportunity to also understand that. And then... Wait, you already have three. <laughs> oh, that can I count? I was going to say like Chris Martin of Coldplay, but fine. <laughs> no, no, no. You can add him. You can add him. You can add him. <laughs> I bucketed my grandparents in one, but very good. Thank you for, keep, very smart. Thank you for keeping me. Keep, thank you for keeping me honest. Gary, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much for talking to us uh, about your life and your incredible work. Oh, I really enjoyed it, Kate. Thank you for doing this. So exceptional to highlight exceptional women and continue doing everything that you do. For everyone at home, thank you so much for downloading this episode and for listening. Feel free and please share this episode with anyone you know or anyone who might find it interesting. Next week, I'll be speaking to Ancha Wegema. She's a designer and creative strategist based in New York City. And she is the founder of Redesign the Kit, which is a company that focuses on redesigning the current rape kit. Until we meet again on the next episode.